Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 48. Now, the last time we were in John 21, Every so many chapters of Isaiah, we take a little hiatus and go through some other scripture for just more variety. Uh, But if you didn't get John 21, definitely get it. It's in a two-part series, and uh, the title was No Discipleship Dissociative Disorder. And John 21 is extremely powerful, and it's good to, we have the videos online, etc. This morning, uh, the message is titled, Jerusalem or Babylon? So a little bit of the setting is the Israelites, since Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were conquered Jerusalem, they were expatriated to Babylonia, the kingdom of Babylon, and uh, God, some 70 years are expiring according to Jeremiah and the different prophets, and God is now ready to release the Jewish people to free them from Babylonia using Cyrus the Persian. So we, we covered all that kind of stuff pretty neat. Uh, so God is telling them through the prophet Isaiah to pack up their bags and they're going back home to Jerusalem. It's only one small problem. A lot of the Israelites, they didn't want to go. They were comfortable in Babylon. They were comfortable in the world. You know, they were comfortable with the idols that Babylon provided. They were comfortable with the food and the culture. And even though God said, this is what I want from you, they resisted him. But you see, Babylon is a picture of the world. And I always caution, because as a new immature believer, I did this. Oh, those Israelites, what's wrong with them? However, Christians in the Christian culture can get too comfortable in the world too. When God calls us to do something, maybe he calls us home one day. And uh, we don't want to go. It's too much fun, too many toys, too much excitement in the world. And, you know, whether you look at this Literally, or you look at this metaphorically, Jerusalem or Babylon, which one are we going to choose? Are we going to choose God's way, or are we going to choose what we want to do? Now, we're going to look at this in five parts, and the real neat thing after this is that after uh, today's sermon, we're going to get into the Messianic prophecies. So we covered uh, Isaiah, we covered the Israelites, or, or Assyrian kingdom with respect to the Israelites, we covered Babylon, With respect to the Israelites, we're now in Persia, right? God's word permeates any kingdoms coming and going. He's still got his people. He's still got a plant, right? So the Persian Empire with respect to the Israelites. And now we're going to move forward where God says, I got something so much better for you. I got spiritual redemption for you through the Messiah. I've got the millennial kingdom. Actually, it's in our future. Um, And these are definitely the chapters you don't want to miss because this is when you say to me, and I, no no problem, Pastor Joe, I'm trying to witness to my family members, my coworkers, this, that, and the other thing, people that I love, and I just don't have the words. I don't, and sure, I'll help you with that, but I tell you, when you get through Isaiah, there's so much in here, you'll be equipped. You'll be armored. You know, you'll have that spiritual equipment to be able to go and share your faith and do it in an articulable fashion. So let's jump in, verse 1, chapter 48. God saying through Isaiah, he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. 
and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, this is key, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city. They lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. So one out of five is God is speaking to His people about their hypocrisy and their disingenuousness. Now, many of the Israelites claimed, oh, well, we're under the... It's very interesting, the, the factions under the umbrella of God's people. And you can see that today in Christendom. There's the true followers. Then there's the tares that Jesus speaks about that work their way into Christendom to try to really put a, put a bad example out there. No difference. Some of the Israelites were truly sold out for the Lord. Some of them did want to go back to the Jerusalem. Some didn't. And they all had these different ideas. Some put on a good show, but they, in their hearts they really weren't. They didn't have a relationship with God. Again, we see that today. Matthew 7. Jesus even says that some will use a pretentiousness, a pretend uh, religious kind of covering, facade. And Jesus will say in the judgment, I never knew you. That's pretty powerful if you read 7, 21 through 23. But this morning, only you, only, only me, we, we're the only ones who know if we truly have a relationship with God or not. And we always give an opportunity every Sunday to come up and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So he says, the house of Jacob. Now remember, Jacob was a man. Jacob, his, imagine naming the things that you named your kid back in the day. Uh, Jacob meant deceiver or supplanter, right? God changes his name to Israel. And of course, the nation is birthed through him. Uh, and Israel means literally governed by God. So Jacob ends up changing. Is he sinless? No. Did he ever get perfected? No. Are we sinless? No. But there should be some type of change when we give our heart to the Lord and we choose to start following Him. By all empirical standards, when compared to Jesus' teaching, are we Christian? Do we have a relationship with the living God? Again, we know that. We know if we do and we know if we don't. Matthew 13 is that parable of the wheat and the tares. Under the umbrella of Christendom and the Christian culture is purity, And it doesn't mean sinlessness, it just means purity in respect to following the teachings, living a lifestyle uh, to the best we can, versus those that come into the church, a part of a denomination, maybe because their parents were that way, and they're just following this line, but they really have no relationship with the living God. So, right out of the box, this is powerful. God says, you swear by the name of God, you identify with the holy uh, city, but you, you give an appearance that you lean on the God of Israel. God's saying me, but not in truth or in righteousness. It's pretense. Jesus even speaks about religious pretense in Matthew 23. Right? There are plenty of denominations that the, the prettier the robes, the staffs, the ornateness, the wealth, you, you might think, well, that's got to be from God. But it could be window dressing. God knows the heart. And when sometimes we see some of these scandals, they're so depraved that we say that that's not those people. They're not Christian. How could you do something like that? And again, it doesn't mean we don't sin. And this is a hard thing to teach because it's a heart issue. And God is the one who can see the heart. You see what I'm saying? But I know me personally, just I go home, I leave the pulpit uh, in my personal life. I'm like, yeah, I do know the Lord. I have a relationship with him. I still sin. I still have to repent but I have a relationship with Him. And that's the thing that we have to look at because God cuts right through the facade and into the heart. Is our faith real or is it pretense? 
You know, I was reading an article about China, how they're really cracking down on Christianity. Of course, they have the communist state church, and they don't speak about the deity of Christ. They don't speak about the Lord's return. It's very surface. They're churches that are, they put um, hacks in there. They put wolves, hirelings in the pulpit to, to toe the communist line. But the real church in China is in the millions. They're the underground church. They're minding their own business. They're getting baptized in, in streams and stuff. And the government cracks down and, and throws them in prison for being Christians because so many Chinese people are becoming believers under this communist government. But I wonder, folks, if persecution came to the United States, how many people would stop coming to church, would burn their Bibles, would give them away? You would really see, not that I wanted to come here, but you would really see who really is sold out for the Lord and who's not. And a persecution has the amazing ability to do that. Verse 3, we continue. He says, I have declared the former things from the beginning, prophecy, telling the future. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and it came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate or you're hard, that your neck was an iron sinew or muscle and your brow bronze, even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you lest you should say, oh, my idol, my false idol, my false religion has done this. And my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. So you, when you go through the prophetic books, if you're new to the Bible, you do have to follow. Sometimes it's in the first person. Sometimes he's actually speaking about how people are thinking. God can read our thoughts. So he's having this dialogue through the prophet with his people that was to be proclaimed to them. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and from the beginning. And before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not open. Jesus picks this up in the New Testament. We all have ears, we hear, stuff travels through the auditory nerve to the brain. But are we really perceiving? Are we really understanding? Do we want to? We see things. We can see the truth under our very eyes. But do we respond to it? Jesus did miracles and people rejected him anyway. They saw it with their eyes and they still reject it. Um, God gave us free will and a lot, a lot of people on the planet are hard-hearted. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. So two out of five is the Israelites, Scott speaking to his people, they have no excuse for not trusting the Lord. And he gives a few reasons. Well, first in, in three through five, he chastises the stubbornness of his own people. So four, a brow of bronze. You're hard-headed. He's saying to, again, under the umbrella of his people, some true believers, some not, you're hard-headed, trying to win some over. And you can win people over with discipline. It happens. Uh, he says your neck muscles are, are of iron. And it doesn't mean that his people had jack trapezius muscles, that they were power lifters. It meant that they were stiff-necked. And he said this often, my people, you're a stiff-necked people. And he would go to great lengths to try to reach them and to, to get to their heart, because they put up walls even to God. And, and folks, can't we be stubborn? 
I can tell you that uh, this wasn't when somebody witnessed to me and I heard the gospel that the first time I heard it, I got down on my knees and I was praising Jesus. I was stubborn too. And I'm so glad that the Lord was patient with me and gave over the years uh, several different people to come into my life to share the truth with me because I was stubborn because I had my free will. I wanted to do it Joe's way. You know, we can be stubborn. And if you're still holding out on God, what are you waiting for? He has so much to offer. He's so good. We'll continue. Amen. So, verse 5, he says to them, and check this out, that God says, I said the future before it happened, and I did it quickly. Because, and speaking to his people, you would tend to, to say, oh, that was my idol, my little idol, my little Babylon idol that I, I kind of, you know, one of the trinkets I bought on the market while I've been in Babylon. Oh, yeah, I pray to this little idol. God says, your idol didn't do it. I did it. He also basically tells them that you would rely on yourself. Self can be a god. Many people don't come to God because they look in the mirror and that's their god. You might say, that's ridiculous. No, it's really not ridiculous. Right? Based on a lifestyle and a behavior, we can make ourselves God. Not, not good going into eternity, but uh, people still do it. So he said, I, there's enough evidence for everyone to know that I am God. Romans 1 tells us in the New Testament that even through nature, I shared many a times with you that I'm, a, I'm a, bee, a beekeeper. And I could go on for hours. I've taught beekeeping classes. They're insects, for heaven's sake. They're little bugs. But they're engineers, and the way they do it's just unbelievable. It's ridiculous. So I don't know how you can't see the finger of God in a bee or an ant. Incredible. <laughs> Starting to like bugs more. <laughs> but... So that's Romans 1, um, and, and many unfortunately, whether they were their own god or they worshipped false idols or even they worshipped the religious aspects of their faith. This is an interesting one. People do this. Jews, Christians, you can see this. They'll worship the religious aspects of their faith, but they never talk to God. They don't have a relationship with Him. You know, who can understand the human psyche? Why do people do the things that they do? I don't know. There's various reasons for that. But the truth is that God wants the heart. God wants our heart. Now, we live in a very pluralistic uh, culture. Your way, my way, everything's right, everything leads to God. That's not what the Bible says. You won't find that in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And the smorgasbord table works really good when you go out to eat. I love smorgasbord. I've trained myself to eat just a little bit at a time because I... Because I'm like, I want, I want all the other ten pieces of food. And that works great for eating, but it doesn't work well with salvation or choosing God. Truth matters. What is the truth, right? If everybody's getting to heaven on all these different standards and scales, that's actually inherently unfair. So even logically, it doesn't make any sense. What is the truth? Verses 6 through 8, God tells them, you know, I... I did these prophecies, I did miracles, and many of you are still stubborn and rebelling against me. Verse 8, biblical truth. He says, but you're transgressors from the womb. Now this is interesting. In Romans 5.12, it tells us that death entered the world when sin entered the world, and sin entered the world through Adam. So our federal head parent, you look at anthropology, you look at archaeology, you look at the Bible, basically says that the human family started in the same place. We actually, all three of those agree on where the, you know, the diversity of genetics and, and the lines and all that kind of stuff. But 
Um, unfortunately, not only do we inherit characteristics from our parents physically, but our first parents that sinned. Unfortunately, we've inherited a sin nature from them. So the only way out in all this is the gospel. Right? Jesus came. Why did he come as a man? Why didn't he just come as God and you know be up there in the clouds? And Because he had to come. It was a whole legal procedure. He had to come in the same line of the, the, the line that the mistake was made and passed down to us to undo it. So he came in the form of a man, fully God, fully man. He gave his life. He was crucified. He suffered condemnation so that if we believe in that sacrifice, his goodness and his righteousness is transferred to us so we can have ever t- everlasting life. I mean, if you're God and you're thinking, gee, I've got to become one of them, and they're a mess, <laughs> and they're mean, and they're going to do horrible things, and... but that's love. It really makes no sense to us. But we have to understand his love and his grace and his compassion for his creation. Verse 9 through 10, God says that he defers his what? His righteous anger. Because when sin entered the world and death through sin and just this misery of millennia of people sinning and war and, and uh, just all the horrible things that happened, murder uh, in, in humanity, he, he had to do this. You know, he could have wiped everybody out righteously and started all over again but he didn't he didn't mercy grace is a gift it's not earned when it comes to god it's his free gift that he gives of eternal life through his son jesus he says that they were refined not as silver though they were tested in the furnace of affliction now hebrews 12 in the new testament talks to us all about i would call the discipline chapter god loves he he chastens he disciplines those he loves Right? If, you, if your kid, you know, you, some of you have little kids and you just let them do whatever they want, hit other kids, uh, you know, throw tantrums at will, you know, run out into the street and not say anything, your kid's going to grow up, if he, if he lives or she lives, going to grow up to be a monster. You know what I'm saying? So uh, God disciplines us uh, spiritually at times. He allows things to happen to discipline us. He's not a cruel God. But sometimes we need that discipline, especially when we're making ourselves a God and we're forsaking him. So Hebrews 12 speaks about the affliction. It speaks about the discipline. And what God allowed was through their time in Babylon for them to go through that smelting furnace of affliction. Although many of them didn't come out as fine silver, like the metallurgic process with silver or gold or something that's from an ore in its its primitive state that you want to get out the perfect metal and this heating and cooling and heating and taking the slag off Um, but there was a spiritual application to this they were in the furnace of the babylonian empire and they didn't measure up i'll read to you two quotes or i'll read to you one quote basically from warren wearsby on this subject now think about some of these ministries that are out there that are they never say anything to hurt your feelings Uh, you know they basically tell you that if you have the power in you, you can always be healthy and wealthy and, you know, get anything you want. It's kind of like spoiled children. But let's, what does Warren Wiersbe say about this subject? He says, God may have to put us as believers into the furnace to remind us that we are here to be servants and not consumers or spectators. Think about that. 
There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians that are living double lives. And not because they're, they're struggling or because they're really trying. It's because they just want the best of both worlds. And God's a very jealous God. And in a good way, he's like, I, I don't want that for my people. Uh, actually, Francis Chan, Pastor Francis Chan, many of you uh, followed his videos and such, he left his megachurch because his complaint was they were turning him into a superstar, into a celebrity. And there were thousands of people that weren't using the spiritual gifts because everybody was looking to him. That's impressive. I, I listen when somebody does that. He walked away from all of that and started little home church, or little home groups because he felt that, that the church was dysfunctional. And I, I've had this discussion too. Everybody here has uh, spiritual gifts. Now what is God, what is it? What does God want you to do with it? Because, and, and I said this, if every Christian was using, every Christian in some small way was using their spiritual gift, how would the world look different? Probably look better, right? We can't say, well, the pastor will do it, or this one will do it, or the deacon will do it. We all have a role here. We're all important to God. This is just my role. It's not better than your role. Actually, I look at some other people's spiritual gifts, and I'm impressed by that. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I can't do that. But that's definitely a gift from God. Again, how does this biblical teaching compare to the prosperity gospel? Well, this is truth. This comes from the Scripture. Verse 11, we continue. He says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. This is God speaking. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. You know, all through Isaiah, especially the latter chapters, God says, I'm the first, I'm the last. You know, the Alpha, the Omega. I am the Savior. I am the Rock. There's no other like me. There's no other Savior. There's no other first and the last. Jesus comes in the New Testament. He says, I'm the Savior. He's the Rock. I'm the first and the last, right? And people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, not only did he claim to be God, but he also used all of God's titles. So he was either out of his mind or he truly was the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. Verse 13, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of you, assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure in Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. So three out of five is God is speaking about something greater than a physical redemption, which they were going to be redeemed. They were going to go back to their homeland. It was going to be rebuilt. It was going to be really beautiful. The temple, the walls, the gates, um, the debris. Amazing what God did through the Persians for the Israelites. And this is all historical fact. You can look this up in any of your history books. Uh, so basically, he's talking them about physical redemption, but he's also overlaying that with spiritual redemption, which I submit is more important. It's great that we live a, a life that uh, provides some benefits in the flesh, but we have a lifespan that's limited to, I mean, some folks live to a little over 100. That's it. 
She said, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway there, you know, if, if I live to 100. So, and I can tell you, I remember my childhood. I remember my teachers in grade school went like that. 50 years goes by really, really fast. So, you know, and, and this is the curse of being young is, and I was there in my 20s, you think you're going to live forever. You don't think you're going to age. You th- it's just, it's a deception. You know, it's almost like you're new. You know, you're a new product that just came out. Uh, but you, as you go through life, you, you gain the wisdom, but you don't have your youth anymore. <laughs> so, but if you know the Lord, you go to be with the Lord and you spend eternity with him. So that's pretty neat. You, you never die. That's, that's fantastic. These are the things that are promised to us in Scripture. So God calculates here that instead of, you know, I guess, I mean, with the whole sin issue, uh, he, he does a work of grace here. And what happens is, I guess he, God does a calculation and figures, God's always thinking of redemption. So when you look at the elites today and you look at the globalists, they're always focused on the body. They're always focused on the flesh. When you read the Bible, God is always focused on the spirit. He's always focused on the part of you that lasts forever. He wants you to be with him in eternity. So think about that. When you go through life, you're in church. You leave here. You go on the internet. You talk to your peer groups. You go back to work tomorrow. What's everybody focused on? This is why we need to read the scripture outside of church. Because we get brainwashed during the week into thinking it's all about the physical. What God is saying is, I want you all with me in eternity. So he does this work of grace so that even the pagans can see, wow, their God is, is like this awesome God. He's how the Israelites, and the, under Cyrus the Persian, he was a conqueror, hell-bent on conquering. How did he soften his heart? They go back, what? He's letting them build a wall in Jerusalem? And pretty impressive. All historical fact. So through this gracious work to his people, even the Gentiles see this. And again, going further, when the Christ comes, he came to save everyone spiritually, uh, both Jew and Gentile. So verse 14 through 16, God says to his people, assemble yourselves here, come near. I'd like to group these words together. When God speaks, we need to listen to him. If you're here this morning, I don't know. I, I don't know who's saved and who's not. I don't have that ability. You don't know the Lord. You came to check out the church. You came with a friend, a relative, co-worker. God is speaking to you right now through his word. I'm just telling you. Because he cares about souls. He wants all his kids with him in heaven. So God is speaking through his word. And, and check it out. Assemble yourselves here. Come near. Part of God's character of being a relational God is his desire to reason with us, not to force us into submission. I love that about him. So God will reach us through prophecy. He'll say, watch this. A hundred years from now, this is going to happen. A thousand years from now, next year. Oh, wow, that had to be God. Who, who could tell the future? God also says this. Gave you a big brain. Gave you free will. You're free moral agents. Come near. Listen to what I have to say. Assemble yourselves. Isaiah tells us before, he says to his people, he says to the world, world come, let us reason together. So not only does God do miracles, prophecy, He tries to stimulate our intellect and say, these are the reasons how you know that I'm real. So he reasons with us. He doesn't force us into submission. You know, it's amazing. Every September, 
every September I get a, an email or a phone call or something from someone who's going back to college. And they, they hit, especially if it's a secular university, they hit reality, you know. And it's, the question is, and I got one recently, this is what the professor is teaching. I'm caught a little flat-footed here. I, I need some information. And I'm willing to do that. That's my role here. But we reason. I just read about another scientist who was from a, a very secular university. I can't remember his name. And he uh, came, to, came to Christ. He came to, through his own research. He came to believe in the living God over evolution. Pretty amazing stuff. So God wants us to reason. He gave us a big brain. Some people just turn it off and they don't want to reason. They want to believe what they want to believe for their reasons. But they don't want to reason. Two different reasons that are going on there. Verse 14, he says, God shall do his pleasure with the Babylon, Babylon and the Chaldeans. Now, again, this is, this is my role. This is what I need to learn. I don't know if you know this, but there were two Babylons. There was early Babylon and Neo-Babylon. And when you go through the prophecies in Isaiah, it almost looks like God says something about Babylon and people go, oh, look, a problem with the scripture. He's talking about Neo-Babylon. Because when you speak about the Chaldeans, that was an ethnic group that were helped leading this Neo-Babylon rising. So old Babylon was conquered by Assyria. Neo-Babylon rose from the ashes and became a powerful force, destroyed Assyria and conquered the world. Again, something I need to know. But for those of you who are advanced, it's an interesting fact that he groups the two of them together. Uh, Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, this was the Neo-Babylonian leadership that conquered the world. Okay? Uh, verse 15, he calls Cyrus the Persian, who would prosper against Babylon and free the Jews. So you've got to watch the progression of the kingdoms here. Okay? Verse 16, <laughs> every so often, and I have a Bible that's actually a Hebraic roots Bible. Whenever I read something about, about something that looks Trinitarian or uh, Messianic, I always go back to my Hebraic Roots Bible and see exactly how the Hebrew is worded. This is very powerful. No matter what version you look at, this is God the Son speaking in the Old Testament before he comes to the earth. Check this out. This goes all the way back to Genesis, by the way. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All throughout the Scripture, God reveals Himself. Uh, but He makes it super clear in the New Testament. It says, The Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Me who? Well, it's not Isaiah. It's not Isaiah. Right? And Genesis speaks about us. And it's not the angels. Because the angels are a created being. God, His order. God is God. There is none like Him. We keep hearing this throughout the Scripture. This is God the Son who comes as the Messiah, right? And we see this in the, in the Gospels. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christ is there, the voice of the Father, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see this all throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament. Um, and the point was that, and Christians can get caught up in this too. We, every day I... I have this body, I have this skin, I have this face, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so my pains that bother me, I, I know that I'm alive, I feel things. Uh, so what happens is we can get caught up in, again, the physical realm. I'm thirsty, I need a drink of water. I'm hot, somebody turn on the air conditioner. This is how we live. But there is a whole other part of us, if we know the Lord, it's body, mind, and spirit. The spirit part, this part is going to die but the spirit part lasts forever. So even in the Old Testament, 
as much as the, even the faithful Jews were so thrilled that they were going to be physically redeemed and step foot back in Jerusalem, some of them had never seen it, the younger generation. God was always saying, follow me. The Lord was saying, the spirit is much more important. I really need to work on the spiritual part of you because that's the part that is with me uh, in eternity forever. So you can see these messianic undertones. You can see these, uh, you know, with the physical redemption, right? Deliverance always comes spiritual redemption. It's all over the scripture. And only God can do certain things in our lives. Give us the power to change. Give us the power to, uh, to be different. It's an amazing thing. Verse 17, we continue. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, that your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. So 17 through 19 is four unfulfilled potential. Let me say that again. Unfulfilled potential. God only wants the best for us. Let me say that again. God only wants the best for you and you and you and all the yous out there. Everyone here has great potential. Now, um, every so often I, 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 get, I get to talk to Christians and, um, and I say this in an encouraging way. They allow their past and how people have treated them to drag them down. But that's not God. You either believe that God created all of us unique, that he loves every single one of us, that he has a plan for every one of us, that he has a spiritual gift for every one of us, he has promises laid up for every one of us. When you're in uh, a city environment and you see thousands of people on the street, you don't necessarily think that. But in your quiet time, call out to him. You know, you all have great potential. You all have spiritual gifts. You know, don't let the herd mentality and the group think, think that you have to be a part of some group or some herd and that you're insignificant. So God only wants the best for us. He's speaking to his people in general, but he's also speaking to individuals. And I look at this as an intimate conversation of a loving father to a wayward kid, almost saying to the kid one-on-one, you know, I want the best for you. I would give my life for you. I'll give my life for you but you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your future. You know, and I don't want to see that. But again, he's given us free will. He's given us free will. I, the Lord, he says, I, I teach you to profit. I lead you the way you should go. Oh, if you would have just followed my word. And we can look at things two ways all the time. We can look at God's word and we can look at the Bible and, and people do this. Before I knew the scripture, you know, my Bible knowledge was through TV or somebody you know, at a party, just spouting stuff off that they don't know anything until I actually started reading the Bible, right? We can read the word. It says, do not do this. Do not, you know, do not lie. Don't commit murder. Don't commit all these things. And say, well, you know, God is just up there. He's always watching us, waiting for us to step out of line so he can smack us in the back of the head. Or we can look at it and saying, he's saying these things for our own protection. You can take the same, isn't that amazing? We see this on the news, don't we? 
You see a, what you thought you saw on the video, and then they show a 90-degree, and you see depth, and you're like, oh, I, I didn't actually saw what I thought I saw at the first angle. So you can look at God with blinders on. You could look at it with occluded sight, occluded sound, and you can see God in a certain way. But if you're not seeing him as loving and gracious and merciful, you're seeing him wrong. You're looking at the wrong angle. You've got to change your vantage point. That's why I have these things. Five years ago, I didn't need them. Now, it's, I can't look at the, the next line unless I put them on. So my vantage point has changed. I thought that word said something, but I put these on and it said something else. But unfulfilled potential. What often holds us back? Our past, disobedience, low self-esteem, disbelief, a whole, a whole lot of things. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. But God knows that we have this unfulfilled potential. He saw it in his people back then, and he sees it today. And, and basically, remember, when the Babylonians conquered, it was a war. So many people were killed, and God says, we, you could have avoided all this. So as you start going through um, you know, your posterity, uh, your prophet, uh, you know, more children, I mean, all these things could have been had, but the Babylonian war killed everything and put them into uh, sort of like a depression. Um, but it was something that they, they did it. God didn't do it. They did it to themselves. He says, it could have been different. Peace like a river. Righteousness like rolling waves of the sea. These metaphors are pretty amazing. And Hebrews 12.1 tells us, unfortunately, sin, sin ensnares us. It traps us. You know, I got caught in a trap. Oh, God set the trap. No, he didn't. I set it for myself. Different vantage point. And I, listen, I can look at my life too and look back and see that uh, many of my decisions harmed me because I didn't listen to God, because I was disobedient. It wasn't like he was punishing me. I did it to myself. And only through maturity you can see that. I mean, the immature person gets up in the morning and blames everybody for all their problems. The mature person says, well, you know, how did I put myself here and how could I get myself out of this? Right? But God's the miracle worker. Without him... We can only do it with our physical abilities. With God, nothing's impossible. Verse 20, last, two ver- last few verses. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldees. With a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this. Utter it even to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst. When he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. This is a reference to Egypt uh, and the wilderness wandering. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So five out of five is that, is that God said, I'm going to free you, but you have to, you have to walk. You know, um, The person who wants God to do, and they say, oh, I do believe. And they sit on their couch for days and weeks and months. But they want God to do some miracle. Well, we also have to get up. It was going to be a tough trek back to Jerusalem. And this is, this is also a part of a relationship with God. God's like, I've got some great things for you. But I need a little bit of your involvement too. You know what I'm saying? I, don't, I can't be dragging you along. You have to believe what I'm saying and you have to put feet on that faith literally. So... Verse 20, he says this emphatically, flee Babylon, but many didn't, many didn't want to. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. 
they were comfortable in Babylon. You, look, you see the same thing in Egypt. And you see overtones of, of, of Egypt. And remember when the children of Israel were in the, were the wilderness and they were dreaming and um, you know, ruining and, and saying how, gee, the leeks and the onions, we had all this in Egypt, but they forgot that they were slaves, forced to make bricks and being whipped. But all they could think about was their fleshly, their bellies. You know, oh, this is hard, God, it's hard. I want to go back to the world. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to stay in Babylon. And Christians can be way too comfortable in this world. Now, I'm not the judgmental type of guy, and I have no problem being transparent. As a, as a younger Christian for years, when I would hear about, well, the, the world is going to get worse, and, uh, you know, the Lord is going to at some point come for his people, and the rapture or the harpazo, however you want to say it, and at some point he's going to remove his people before all the plagues of revelation and such. And I've got to be honest with you, when I heard that teaching, I didn't tell anybody, but I was like, I don't want the rapture to come, you know. I got this job that I want. I got, I'm working on my house and immaturity. All I could think about was all the worldly things that I was doing. I don't want to hear anything about it. Rapture. I love the Lord, but maybe I didn't love all the teachings. Maybe I didn't love all His wisdom for my life. Now I'm like, whenever you want to come, Lord, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> so, and it just comes with maturity. But there's a lot of Christians who want to stay in Babylon. You know, they're not ready. They're not ready for the Lord. Verse 21, recounting the deliverance from Egypt and the miraculous provisions. This, some say that uh, leaving Babylon was a second exodus. Egypt was the first. Babylon was the second. He says in verse 22, there's no, (laughs) he says, there is no peace for the wicked. There's actually an expression that we have in, in our vernacular there's no rest for the wicked. <laughs> so uh, every so often I like to bring out uh, the Bible, how it predates our language. The Bible came first and how we pull terms out of the Scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? There's a whole lot of them. And this is one of them. There's no rest for the wicked. God was speaking to his people. And some of them were going to remain wicked. But And, and let, again, a little bit of the carrot, a little bit of the stick. I got a, a lot of really great things for you. I really want you to turn your heart around. I want you to trust me. I want you to repent. I want you to change. This is going to be great. And some still ignored his word. They ignored the prophets. You know, Isaiah, uh, all intents and purposes, was killed by his own people. Just so you know, this amazing prophet. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to hear the truth. So the message title is Jerusalem or Babylon. And again, these are metaphors for where's our heart? So this is an easy one. So the Israelites, um, yeah, some of them were faithful to the Lord. They went to Jerusalem. Others were, I like Babylon. I'm really comfortable. That's an easy one. What about unbelievers? Anybody here who doesn't know the Lord? Sometimes when I do the altar call and the person knows they're sitting there because I was you 20-something years ago. They hear the music, they, the altar call, come up and receive Jesus, and there's a struggle in their heart. There's a fidgeting, there's a looking around, the heart rate maybe increases a little bit. I'm not, the seats don't have heart rate checkers, so don't worry about it. Uh, so, but basically what happened, maybe a little bit of sweating on the brow. Uh, but the thing is, the unbeliever, sometimes what keeps them from coming up or receiving Jesus is the fact that they're very comfortable in Babylon. I've got news for you, Babylon's not going to last forever. So, you know, and God, how does God call us? With cords of love. I love you. I created you. 
I love you so much that I'm not going to force you to love me. I'm going to give you free will and you can sit in that seat Sunday after Sunday. But I really love you and I want you to come to me. Believer. Believer. For the, for the believers. The Christian culture, the Western culture in America is, has a very strong draw. And there are plenty that, you know, again, it's not for me to judge. I'm a Christian. They have this reason, that reason. Their heart's really not for Jerusalem. It's for Babylon. They're too comfortable. Too comfortable. Israel got into a routine in Babylon as Christians can get into a routine in the United States. Many Israelites were excited for what the Babylonian system could bring them. My question to you, brothers and sisters, what excites you? There are many Christians who start off so excited for the things of the Lord. They just can't contain themselves. They're going to this service and that service. And then five, ten years later, Satan is good. Maybe, he's not good, but he's good at what he, his craft. <laughs> Strike that. Uh, what he does is, if he can't get you to not believe in God, he can make you ineffective for God. There are a lot of Christians in that, in that category. Five, ten, fifteen years later, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But I really can't wait till I get this new house. I really, and listen, we should enjoy milestones. But do we enjoy it more than the things of God? Somebody might have been used by God ten years ago. They were on fire and that's all changed. Their fire is now but a little pilot in their gas stove. Now they blend it in with the mediocre Christian culture. I'll leave you with this. A lot of pastors don't want to go here. They just want to say, well, this is what happened in the Bible, and amen, have a nice day. Babylon was destroyed. The United States is not going to last forever. This world in its sinful state, is God's not, he can't have it. He's got a timetable. He's going to remake everything beautiful, something to look forward to, and we'll be with him for eternity. But the question as we close is Jerusalem or Babylon? You decide. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.